Jesus and Melchizedek walk into a bar. And the bartender says to Jesus, we don't serve your type here. So Melchizedek walks out. Think about that. Do you get it? If you still don't get it, let me explain. The man named Melchizedek, the priest and king who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 and in the book of Hebrews and in Psalm 110, which James just read, that man, Melchizedek, is a type of Christ. In other words, he's a picture, a type in the Old Testament who is pointing us toward Jesus. Just like Jesus said in Luke 24, all of the Old Testament was testifying of him and pointing toward him. The sacrifices in the sacrificial system obviously were pointing to Jesus. The furniture in the tabernacle and in the temple was pointing to Jesus. The Levitical priests doing their service were pointing to Jesus. So too, Melchizedek was pointing to Jesus. All of these things in the Old Testament were types and shadows that were pointing us to the reality that was to come, namely Jesus. So in the same way that you read about a sacrificial lamb being slaughtered in the Old Testament and you think, this has to be pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for sinners on the cross, you must also read about Melchizedek and think, this guy named Melchizedek, who was a prophet, priest, and king, and who blessed Abraham, he has to be pointing to Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king, who blesses us. So when Jesus and Melchizedek walk into a bar, and the bartender says to Jesus, we don't serve your type here, and Melchizedek walks out, then you know why Melchizedek walks out. Because the type is no longer needed. The type has served its purpose to point us to Jesus. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ, a man who is pointing us toward Jesus. And now that the reality has come, Melchizedek, along with all of the Levitical sacrificial system, has to leave. The types are no longer needed because Jesus is here. The reality that the types were pointing to and the shadows of the old covenant, they are all pointing us to Jesus. And that's why the bartender doesn't serve Melchizedek's type because Jesus is here and Jesus is better. So who was this guy named Melchizedek? And why does the preacher of Hebrews spill so much ink on him? He's already mentioned him three times so far in his letter. And why did the preacher think it would be hard for the Hebrews to understand Melchizedek's connection to Jesus? If you remember in chapter 6, the meat that he wants to get onto is telling him about the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. But he tells him in chapter 5 and chapter 6, you're dull of hearing. I want to talk about this deep stuff, but I've got to go over the basics of the gospel with you again. So why is it hard to understand the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus? Before we answer those questions... Let me give you our big idea for the sermon today, which has everything to do with Melchizedek and Jesus. And here's our big idea. Grace flows downhill. Now, if you know Hebrews 7, you may be thinking to yourself, where in the world is he getting that idea? 
And I'll explain it more as we go along. But let me read the words to you, uh, some words to you from Jack Miller, a man who has had a very significant impact upon my life and in my understanding of the gospel. Jack Miller said this in his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader. Grace flows downhill. It runs down from the heights of God to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Grace also takes away fear and reveals the mighty, tender, compassionate securities of God. As you humble yourself, you will find fears fading away like the morning mist. Believe, only believe. Grace flows downhill. And it's what we'll see in our passage today. When we look at this mysterious figure named Melchizedek, we will be reminded that grace flows downhill, that it moves south, that it goes down, that it flows downhill to humble sinners. Grace lives at the bottom. Grace resides at the bottom, and it flows downhill to humble sinners. And that's exactly what we'll see in God's word today. So let's start at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, so that we can get our feet wet again. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So who was this guy, Melchizedek? What we know about him, we get from Hebrews chapter 7 and Genesis 14, and he's also briefly mentioned in, in Psalm 110, and the preacher, which the preacher has quoted several times in his sermon so far. What we do know about Melchizedek, Melchizedek is that he was a king, and he was a priest, and he was a prophet. He was a prophet in the sense that he spoke God's words, God's word of blessing to Abraham, and he blessed him. And we know this about him, that Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils of war. So who is Melchizedek? Some people believe that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ, that uh, Melchizedek was actually Jesus who appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. But I don't think that's accurate because, one, if Melchizedek is Jesus then the preacher of Hebrews would have just come out and said that. In fact, it would be very easy for the Hebrews to understand this if the preacher had just told them, remember that guy Melchizedek in Genesis 14? That was actually Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus appeared to Abraham, and that's why Jesus is better than the old covenant. And we would have made the point of his letter just with that. But secondly, the preacher actually says in verse 3 that Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Look at verse 3. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek 
was not the pre-incarnate Christ, because the preacher of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek resembles Jesus. So Melchizedek is a type who is pointing us to Jesus' work as prophet, priest, and king. Melchizedek resembles Jesus, but he's not Jesus. Melchizedek is a type, and as a type, he is someone who symbolizes and anticipates one who is to come. So Melchizedek symbolized and he anticipated Jesus' coming, our prophet, priest, and king. So who was Melchizedek then? If he wasn't the pre-incarnate Christ, who was he? Answer, he was a man, a human being, and a sinner just like you and just like me. But he was unique in that he was a priest and he was a king, the king of Salem. And he met Abraham in the valley of Sheva one day and blessed him. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 14. Keep your place in Hebrews 7 so that we can read what Moses says about this man, Melchizedek. And the context here in Genesis 14 is this. Abraham's nephew, Lot, who was living in Sodom, he had been kidnapped by some other people. So Abraham gathers up his troops and he goes to war in order to rescue his nephew, Lot. And after he successfully rescues Lot... Two kings come and they meet Abraham in the valley of Sheva. So Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. After his, Abraham's return from the defeat of Cato-Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine very significant. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, or Abraham, his name gets changed, gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So after rescuing Lot, Abraham is met by two kings in the valley of Sheva, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. But I don't know if you notice this, but did you notice that Abraham refused any sort of connection with the king of Sodom? Abraham knew what was happening in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the gross immorality that was happening in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham wanted nothing to do with that. He wants nothing to do with the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah because he is a servant of Yahweh, God Most High. Not that Abraham thought... He was perfect, or I'm better than those sinners in Sodom, those sinners in Gomorrah. It wasn't that. Abraham was a sinner. The difference was he was in covenant with the Lord. He was in covenant with Yahweh. So what does Abraham do? Instead of associating with the king of Sodom, he eats a covenant meal with Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And he received a blessing from Melchizedek, and then he paid a tithe to him. 
what you may not remember because we just jumped into Genesis 14 is that a few chapters back in Genesis 12, Yahweh appeared to Abraham and promised to bless him. So when we read in chapter 14 that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, we are being reminded that the Lord is keeping his promise to bless Abraham. But how did Melchizedek become a priest of the Most High God? How did he get to this place whereby he would be the one blessing Abraham, the man who was blessed by God? The answer, we don't know. The Bible does not answer that. For us. We have no idea how Melchizedek rose to this position as a spiritual leader, as a priest of the Most High God. And I think our tendency sometimes is to think that it was just Abraham and his family who were walking with God at this time, walking with Yahweh, walking with the Lord. But that's not true. The Lord was working in and through other people, and Melchizedek was one of them. In fact, he was a priest of God. And what do priests do? They represent sinners before God. So Melchizedek was this priest, and he was also this powerful king of Salem, and he represented sinners before the Lord. And that's about all we can say about him. We don't know how he became a priest. We don't know how Abraham knew that he was a priest, but he was And therefore, he shared a covenant meal with Abraham, and then he blessed Abraham. So Melchizedek comes down from Salem, which is actually Jerusalem. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He's the king of Jerusalem, which is located on a hill. And he descends that hill, and he meets Abraham in the valley of Sheva. And then he shares a covenant meal with Abraham. Look again at Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cato Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek, this priest of the Most High God, who was also the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, he leaves Jerusalem and he comes down into the valley where Abraham is and he gives Abraham bread and wine and then blesses him. And then as a prophet, he speaks this blessing over Abraham. Did you catch that? Melchizedek is a prophet. He's a priest and he is a king. And he comes down from a hill and he gives bread and wine to Abraham. Who does that remind you of? Who do you know that comes down from a great height and gives bread and wine to sinners and sustains their faith? I don't want to give away the answer because I want you to connect the dots, but you know it's Jesus, right? Melchizedek was a type of Christ. He was pointing to Jesus, pointing to this king who would descend from a great height and share bread and wine, a covenant meal with sinners in order to sustain their faith. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus comes to us in the bread and the cup and we share a covenant meal with him and he sustains our faith. Do you see here how Melchizedek was a type of Christ? Melchizedek shows us that grace flows downhill. God in his grace met Abraham in the valley 
that day. God blessed Abraham through Melchizedek, the priest. This is how God deals with sinners in the gospel. God blesses us. God comes down to us. He condescends to us. His grace flows down to sinners like us. And Abraham was a sinner just like us. Abraham needed grace. Please don't think that Abraham was squeaky clean. Just because Yahweh promised to bless Abraham did not mean that Abraham was squeaky clean. In fact, after the Lord promised to bless Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, what did Abraham do in Genesis 13? He lied to Pharaoh and said, Sarah is not my wife. Remember, he thought, you're so beautiful. If we show up there, they're going to kill me so they can get you. So I'm going to say you're my sister and you're not my wife. A bold-faced lie. Abraham did not deserve any blessing. Abraham did not earn the blessing. But that's how grace works. It shows up and it blesses liars. Grace blesses people who don't deserve it. Grace blesses liars, scoundrels, and rebels. And that makes some people mad. Mike Iaconelli says, according to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places. He said the wrong things. And worst of all, he let just anyone into the kingdom. Jesus scandalized an intimidating, elitist, country club religion by opening membership in the spiritual life to those who had been denied it. What made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoevers, the just anyones, and the not-a-chancers like you and me. Nothing makes people in the church more angry than grace. Let me read that again. Nothing makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we weren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninviteds get in. And then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we are included in the party because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible by being self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which, as I understand it, are who the kingdom of God is supposed to include. Abraham was part of the riffraff. He lied to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife. In fact, he does it two times in Genesis. And then his kids follow in their dad's footsteps, don't they? So please don't minimize this lie of Abraham. Abraham lied to a very powerful political leader of his day. And then a short time later, Grace came knocking on his door through another very powerful political leader, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And grace came to Abraham in the covenant meal 
of bread and wine that he shared with Melchizedek, just like God's grace comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Do you see the big picture of Genesis 12, 13, and 14? Genesis 12, Yahweh appears to Abraham and says, I will bless you, I promise. Genesis 13, Abraham says, she's not my wife, I promise. Genesis 14, God comes and keeps his promise to Abraham. Abraham is just like us. We, yes, Grace, we are that fickle. And God is that faithful. We chase after a thousand other lovers all the time because we are that fickle. But the good news of the gospel is, yes, our God is that faithful. When you read about the covenant meal shared by Melchizedek and Abraham, when you read that they ate bread and drank wine, you're supposed to think of Jesus and how in his grace he comes to us and meets our spiritual needs. Jonathan Edwards said this, in case you don't want to take it from this Johnny come lately. He wore a powdered wig though, I don't. Jonathan Edwards said this, The bread and the wine signified the same blessings of the covenant of grace that the bread and the wine do in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Melchizedek's coming to meet him with such a seal of the covenant of grace on the occasion of this victory evinces that it was a pledge of God's fulfillment of the same covenant. When Melchizedek shares a covenant meal with Abraham and speaks a blessing over him, he is prefiguring Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. And that is exactly the point that the pastor to the Hebrews is making in Hebrews chapter 7. So flip back over to Hebrews chapter 7, and we will begin in verse 1 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The preacher of Hebrews rightly points out the significance of Melchizedek's name and where he reigned as king. Melchizedek's name in the Hebrew is king of righteousness. It comes from the Hebrew word melech, which is the, the word for king. And it comes from the Hebrew word for righteousness, sedek. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness. But he also points out that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, was also the king of Salem. The word Salem here is the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He's a type that is obviously pointing to Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our king who rules over us. And what does he bestow upon us? Righteousness and peace. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for us and therefore... When we repent and believe in him, he credits us with his righteous life so that we are able to stand in God's white, hot presence. We are justified. We're forgiven of our sins, declared righteous. We are blameless. We've been given the righteousness that we need to be made right with God and to be able to stand in his presence. And because we have Jesus' righteousness credited to us, we therefore have peace with God. 
And that's exactly what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper when we take communion. We celebrate the fact that we have peace with God. We have a covenant meal with Jesus. Bread and wine. Or here, bread and Welch's. Thank you, Mr. Welch. He was a... My, my history... I can remember it correctly. I believe he was a pastor and was against wine, and then he came up with Welch's grape juice, and the church caught on, and many churches have been doing it since. So we have bread and Welch's here. But we have a covenant meal with Jesus with bread and, well, it's not really bread either, is it? We have a little square something and a little bit of Welch's, and Jesus comes to us, and he blesses us, and he sustains our faith. He comes to us and imparts his grace to us. That means that Jesus is better because he blesses us with righteousness and peace. Jesus is better than all of the old covenant types and shadows because he blesses us with righteousness and peace. Jesus is better than Aaron and all the priests of the Old Testament because he blesses us with righteousness and peace. Jesus is better than Melchizedek because he blesses us with righteousness and peace. That's grace. Sinners like us who could never stand in God's presence now have access because of Jesus. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls because Jesus, as our forerunner, has gone behind the curtain into God's presence. That's grace. It's proof that grace flows downhill. Grace flows down to sinners. Jesus comes down to be with sinners Like us. So please understand that this passage is not about Melchizedek. This passage is about Jesus. The fundamental point here is not that we would walk away knowing more about Melchizedek and solving the mystery of this man, whoever he was. The fundamental point is that we would come away more in awe of Jesus and more trusting of him. The point is not to know Melchizedek. The point is to know Jesus, your great, merciful, faithful high priest. Christian, you have a forever great, a forever faithful, a forever merciful high priest. And you need to know today how great a Savior your Savior is. And you need to know today just how great a priest your high priest is. Some of you probably came in here today carrying big problems and you have big sins that you regret. And some of you are carrying the big weight of guilt and shame and you need to know that you have a savior and a priest who is big enough to deal with all of that. And that is ultimately why the preacher of Hebrews is spilling all this ink about Melchizedek. In fact, he keeps spilling ink about your high priest Jesus all the way to chapter 10. And he'll do that, and he does that, to give you and I solid assurance that our sins are forgiven and that our burdens and our cares really matter to God. All of this talk about this mysterious man named Melchizedek is designed to help you understand something about your Savior, Jesus. And that something that you're supposed to understand about Jesus is supposed to strengthen your hope and strengthen your assurance in Him. 
The preacher of Hebrews wants us to know that we have a Savior who is big enough to deal with our problems. And we have a high priest who is able to deal with our sins. Jesus is our priest forever. Look at verse 3. He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Understand here that the preacher is not saying that Melchizedek literally had no beginning and no ending. He's saying that Melchizedek just kind of shows up on the scene in Genesis, and then he leaves, and he's never heard from again. We don't know where Melchizedek came from, who his parents were. All that we know is that he was the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. And he shares a meal with Abraham and blesses him. And then Melchizedek disappears. So he just kind of shows up, and then he's gone. And when you think about the book of Genesis, in all of its many genealogies, the ones that you love to read and memorize and highlight in your Bible, when you think about the book of Genesis and all those names that are hard to pronounce, Melchizedek stands out because we don't have any family tree on this guy. We don't know who his uncles were, who his cousins were, who his mom and dad were, if he had any siblings. We get nothing on him. He just shows up with no beginning and no ending. And so he leaves the scene of Genesis as a priest and king. And within the book of Genesis, it's as if he remains a priest and king forever. He lives on in scripture. He lives on in the book of Genesis as a priest and king. He was never born in scripture. We have no record of his birth. And he never dies in scripture. We have no record of his death. So in that sense, he lives on forever. Now, of course, we know that he was actually born because he's a human being. He has a beginning. And we know that he died because every single human being dies because of Adam. But scripture never gives us any of those details. So in that sense, Melchizedek lives on forever. He lives on in the pages of scripture forever. He lives on in the pages of Genesis forever. Now, why do we have no record of Melchizedek being born or dying? Especially in the book of Genesis, which has all of these family trees. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar, answers that question when he says this. The silence of the Old Testament scriptures concerning his parentage has a design significance. The entire omission was ordered by the Holy Spirit in order to present a perfect type of the Lord Jesus. This was God's plan. In his sovereign wisdom, he left out the details of Melchizedek so that David in Psalm 110 and the preacher of Hebrews would have a type that would point to the person in work of Jesus. Melchizedek is like Jesus. It's not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. No, Melchizedek is the one who is like Jesus. And Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, he shared a covenant meal with Abraham, and then he blessed him. Now, who in the world does that sound like? The answer is every Sunday school answer ever. Jesus. You know, you ask a question in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. How many loaves of fishes did they take up? Jesus. Jesus comes down to us. He meets us at the bottom. Grace flows downhill to sinners like us. Jesus comes to us and he blesses us. The preacher of Hebrews is going to get into some really uh, dense material here 
in the rest of chapter 7. So you can see why he was concerned about the Hebrews understanding it. So we're going to read it now, Hebrews beginning in verse 4, chapter 7, verse 4. You can see how this was hard for them to understand. He says this, See how great this man, Melchizedek, was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You could see why this would be hard for a new Christian to understand, right? Share the gospel with someone, they trust in Jesus, and then you say, let me read this to you. Here's the point that the preacher is making. Melchizedek is greater than Aaron and all the other priests because he came before them. The Levitical priests would receive tithes from their brothers, from fellow Israelites, because God's law commanded that. But Melchizedek was not an Israelite. And yet he received tithes from Abraham, who was the father of the Israelites. And then Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the one who had the promises from Yahweh. So Melchizedek, the superior, blessed Abraham, the inferior. Grace flowed down from the superior to the inferior because that's always how grace works. So Melchizedek received these tithes from Abraham just like the Levitical priests in the Old Testament received tithes from their brothers. But the difference between those priests and Melchizedek is that those priests die. They're mortal. They have to be replaced. But Melchizedek lives forever. In Scripture, we get a record of his death. So Melchizedek lives on forever in the pages of Scripture, and therefore he is greater than the Levitical priests. It's not that Melchizedek wasn't mortal and never died. It's just that his death is never recorded. So in that sense, he lives forever And therefore, he's greater than Abraham and greater than Aaron and all the other priests. And that's why he is the perfect type to point to Jesus' eternal priestly ministry to us. Now, remember the context. The Hebrews were wanting to return to the law to be justified, to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So the preacher of Hebrews points out how Melchizedek is greater because Abraham paid tithes to him. And even Levi and all the priests paid tithes to him. The preacher says that you could even make a case that Levi and all the other priests paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, why does the preacher say this? He does it because the Hebrews wanted to return to and elevate the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. So the preacher says that Melchizedek is greater because he came before the law. He came before the sacrificial system. He came before the priesthood. He's greater than the priesthood because he has a priesthood that endures forever. You see now why that's hard to understand? It's not like Melchizedek himself is better or greater. It's that he is a type of Christ and he's pointing to Jesus, the priest who really does have an eternal 
priestly ministry to sinners like us. So please understand, this passage is about Jesus. It's not about Melchizedek. The fundamental point here is not that we would come away knowing more about Melchizedek and solving the mystery of who this man was. The fundamental point that we should come away with is that we would be more in awe of Jesus, more trusting of him and loving him more and more. The point is not to know Melchizedek. The point is to know Jesus our great high priest whose ministry to us continues forever. Christian, you have a forever great, a forever faithful, a forever merciful high priest in Jesus. And you need to know that today, that your high priest, your Savior, is a great Savior. And you need to know today just how great a high priest your high priest is. Because some of you came in here today carrying very big problems. Relational mess and junk. Stress. And some of you came in here with big sins that you regret and you are carrying a big weight of shame and guilt. And you need to know that you have a Savior and a High Priest who is big enough to deal with all of that. Jesus is better. That's the point to the book of Hebrews. In all of our sorrows, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. More than any comfort, more than all riches, Jesus is better. As we close, let me read some words to you from Puritan Thomas Goodwin that have brought so much comfort to my heart. Now, Thomas Goodwin, if you don't know, he was a quirky Puritan. He used to wear these nightcaps out, out in public. And not just one nightcap, he would wear four and five and six and just stack them on top of one another. That's why I love the Puritans, they're quirky. It's like John Owen, he was quirky. He used to wear these knee-high Spanish leather boots and a powdered wig and these big hats that he always kept cocked to one side. I love the Puritans because they're quirky. Well, one of my quirky Puritans that I love is Thomas Goodwin. His words have brought so much comfort and joy to my heart. They've helped me to understand immensely how much Jesus loves me, how he cares for me when I struggle. Goodwin shows that in all of his white-hot glory in heaven, Jesus is not sour towards his people. If anything, Goodwin says, his tender heart beats more strongly than ever with tender love for his people. And Goodwin points out that two things stir Jesus' compassion for us. Number one, he says, it's our afflictions, it's our struggles, it's our problems. And then number two, and this is almost unbelievable, he says, number two, what stirs Jesus' compassion for us is our sins. From the introduction to his book, The Heart of Christ Towards Sinners on Earth, Goodwin explains what his purpose in writing the book is, and in it he really stresses the reality that grace really does flow downhill. He says this, The heart of Christ, as now he is in heaven, sitting at God's right hand and interceding for us, how it is affected and graciously disposed towards sinners on earth that do come to him. 
how willing to receive them, how ready to entertain them, how tender to pity them in all of their infirmities, both sins and miseries. The scope and use whereof, of his book, will be this, to hearten and encourage believers to come more boldly unto the throne of grace, unto such a Savior and high priest, when they shall know how sweetly and tenderly his heart, though he is now in his glory, how it's inclined towards them. And so to remove that great stone of stumbling which we meet with. And that great stone of stumbling is, he is in his white-hot glory, I'm a sinner. Can I come into his presence, really? Later in his book, he says this, So Jesus also lays open his own disposition, what he's like. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, you that are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. He says, men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, or contrary thoughts of Christ, to what he just said in Matthew 11. Men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, but he tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. So he says, Jesus tells us what he's like in Matthew 11 so that we will come into his presence. So that we will, we will remove those thoughts that we think he has a sour disposition towards me. He says, he tells us in that moment, I'm meek and lonely of heart, come unto me, come, come. Because we think he's in his white hot glory. I can't go. But then he continues. Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Your very sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Christ, he says, takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that hath the leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease. And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. In other words, he's saying, if you have a disease in your arm, you don't hate your arm. You hate the disease because the arm is part of you. In other words, he says, as a father looks at their child who has the sickness, you don't hate your child in that moment. You hate the sickness. All of your anger and frustration is moved towards healing that sickness, but your child or your help moves out in pity toward them. That's how God is with us. Even in our sins. Of course he hates our sins. But he moves in pity towards us. This is your high priest, Christian. He's tender, he's merciful, he's meek, lowly of heart, humble, faithful, gracious, and compassionate. This is who Melchizedek was pointing to. Melchizedek was pointing you to your high priest. So Jesus and Melchizedek walk into a bar And the bartender says to Jesus, we don't serve your type here. So Melchizedek walks out. And Jesus stays in the bar to minister to tax collectors and to prostitutes 
and to sinners and the whosoevers and the just anyones and the not a chancers and the riffraff. And that's good news for people like us. Let's pray. Father, it is almost unbelievable that you would be so merciful to us because we choose other lovers all the time. And yet your heart breaks and in pity you come. Your son Jesus comes to us and tells us what he's like so that we would run to him and not from him. This morning, would your spirit impress who your son is upon our hearts so that we don't run away from him, that we run to him in his white-hot glory into your very presence and that we would find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Thank you that Jesus swings wide the doors of the kingdom and lets in the riffraff and the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors and the whosoevers and the not-a-chancers like us. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.